Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, listeners. I'm so thankful and happy that you're here today, and I am very honored to introduce you to Adrian Miller, otherwise known as the Soul Food Scholar. I recently read the second of Adrian's three books so far, titled The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. I loved this book of historical anecdotes, which were interesting in their own right, and also often served to teach us larger truths about the office and the country. But honestly, I was hooked while reading Adrian's bio, which was written with a humor and a humility that belied his impressive resume. Among other accomplishments, Adrian Miller served as special assistant to President Bill Clinton with his initiative for One America to address issues of racial, religious, and ethnic reconciliation. Adrian is a James Beard Award winner, a former attorney, and a certified barbecue judge who lives in Denver, Colorado, and currently leads the Colorado Council of Churches as they work together for justice. Adrian was kind enough to come on and answer my fumbling questions about many of these topics, from the scholarly definition of soul food to his personal history, and finally, his ongoing and sadly often frustrating work on the front of racial reconciliation. I am grateful to Adrian for his scholarship, wisdom, and time. I commend his books to you, and I am thrilled to share this interview today. Adrian, I'm so honored to be chatting with you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Sure. Yeah. So this icebox cake, I have to tell you, it felt like an Easter. It felt like an Easter recipe, was it? Uh, so that was a recipe that was more for summer. Yeah. So we didn't have that usually like um, during barbecue season. So it was more like Memorial Day, July 4th and Labor Day. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to tell you my, you know, so I have four boys and of course they've all been home this year and my younger two have been memorizing poetry all by black poets. And the first one we did was this poem. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's Knoxville, Tennessee by Nikki Giovanni. No, I don't know that one. Oh, it's, it's, it's just, it's so light and beautiful and it just celebrates the fresh foods and being at church picnics. And, um, nice. Yes. And it, when I read the article that you sent me with this icebox cake in it, it just made me feel like I was reading that poem all over again. You know, just, I had these feelings of warmth and nostalgia and belonging and a full belly, <laughs> you know? Oh, that's a good feeling to have. <laughs> yes. Yes. So tell me about that feeling, those feelings. Is that what you experienced yeah, so um, the thing, just for historical context, the thing mm -hmm. to understand is that the church, the early Christian church, was really born out of people having potluck meals or meals at their mm -hmm. home mm -hmm. uh, and getting together and starting to spread, you know, what they believed in and the gospel and all of that. So mm -hmm. uh, my faith tradition is called African Methodist Episcopal. Yeah. So we, we go by AME. Yep. But uh, jokingly, people say AME means always meet and eat. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, part of social, because the, the church not only is an important spiritual center, but it also is a social center. Yes. For a lot of people, especially people who are in the minority in a community. It's a, it's a, it's a safe space. Yeah. And so that communal and social aspect has always been an important part of church life. And, you know, the savviest faith leaders have realized that, you know, when you give some people something a little bit extra, 
to look forward to. And then, you know, having good cook, cooks recruited yeah. <laughs> and all that kind of stuff helps build your flock. So it's the bait, literally. Right. Yeah. So all of that, all of that comes together. So, you know, we, we would have certain special events during the year at my church, which is called Campbell Chapel AME Church in Denver. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the church I grew up in and I'm still a member. So there, there were certain planned uh, big kind of feasts. Mm-hmm. And then there were a lot of just impromptu. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of was it, no. was it every Sunday or every, uh, was it a weeknight thing that you guys no, would eat? So, no, it really varied. So it definitely mm-hmm. was not every Sunday. So we, we didn't have that kind of deep of a tradition. Um, it was really just certain times during the year, like men's day, women's day. Yeah. There was a thing we called harvest rally, which is always the weekend before Thanksgiving, this, you know, this, the, that Sunday. And then we would have for men's day, the men would barbecue ribs <laughs> we would have fish dinners, you know, a lot of these things were fundraisers for the church. Right. As well. Right. Yeah. There was a lot of older people at my church. So a couple of years ago, we had a, a centenarian. And wow. so to celebrate her birthday, one of the members of my church, who's a good baker, she made a cake, a different cake to represent every different decade. Oh, wow. 10 cakes. (laughs) That's amazing. Did she pull from historical events, like what was popular at the time? Or did she pull a little bit more personally from what was going on in this woman's life? I think it was a little bit what was going on in the woman's life and then just what was in her repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. I think she just made sure that the woman liked all of those cakes. Mm, Uh, Yeah. So. That's amazing. Well, I was so struck by this term that you used that you were fed spiritually and culinarily by your church. And I'm curious if you think that, you know, you brought up what happened in the early church, that this was something that was instituted almost at the beginning. Maybe you could even argue the Last Supper, right? So I'm curious if you think that a church in general, and then your church in particular, can even fulfill a mission if it's not feeding A, its own members, and also what's the significance of feeding members of the community? Yeah, well, I I think just because of what I've understood about other churches, I think it is possible to still do your mission without that feeding. I I think it's a function of how big the church is, Mm. because uh, some of these churches are so big, I think to actually have regular food events would be a Herculean effort. Yeah. But, you know, when you have a, when you have a smaller congregation, it's just easier to kind of pull those things off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've never belonged to a mega church, so I just don't know, but yeah, you know, church with 14,000 members, I don't know how you would. <laughs> yeah, I know. Although, I mean, in theory, in theory, it always seems if everybody's bringing something to the potluck, there should be enough to eat, but enough people sign up for soda. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Right. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, but no, no. I think, um, I think a, a true, a church is a community and yes. Uh, I can't see, I I just don't know of a community that exists without food because, you know, we all have to eat Yep. and it's a way to recognize the humanity of the people with with whom you're in fellowship. And, um, you know, the Christian church at least symbolically does that. Some people do it every week. Some people do it a month, but you know, there's the Eucharist, which you mentioned talks about the Lord's supper, right? So that's, that's the thing that binds one of the things that binds all Christians together is that remembrance uh, through food. Right, right. And I, I mean, I personally don't think that in the early church that was, you know, everybody sitting there and somebody passing a plate of little wafers. I think it was a meal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you said that your mom brought this icebox pie to the church dinners a lot. And I'd love to know a little bit more about your mom. What was her story? And you can go back if you need to go back further, you know, a few generations. 
what was her story just as a as a woman, as a Black American woman, and as a cook? And how were those related? Yeah, so she grew up in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, mm. uh, born in the early 40s. So, you know, during World War II era. Mm. So her father, my grandfather, was a cook on the Southern Railroad. Wow. So uh, that was his profession. And so he was a good cook. And I'm sure she knew how to learn how to cook from him. Uh, so she was married and that was not, she did not, was not in a good marriage um, when she first got married. So to get away from that situation, she got divorced and moved to Denver where she, one of her older sisters lived. Okay. Which is, you know, a typical migration story, you know, chain yeah. migration. You, you follow somebody, you know. Sure. Um, in a place. So yeah, she came to Denver in the early 60s. And my dad, who was separately, was in the military and came, was stationed in Denver in the 60s. And then they met at Campbell Chapel AME Church where- (laughs) Where you still go. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that lovely? Yeah. So she was always interested in food and stuff. I think, um, you know, I talked to her, uh, she died five years ago, almost six years now. But um, I, I remember, oh, thank you. Yeah, I remember talking to her and I think if she could do it all over again, she would have become a dietitian. Really? Uh, yeah, I think that that was something she'd always been interested in, but um, you know, it just never worked out for her to to pursue that. Mm, did that interest in nutritious foods reflect in the cooking, you know, your your childhood food, the her cooking? Thankfully not. <laughs> So she was really good at making all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. So we had soul food, we had Mexican food, Italian food, Chinese food. Uh huh. So I was lucky that I grew up with um, somebody who could actually cook. I'm, I was really surprised to hear how many kids I knew had did not have moms who could cook very well. <laughs> I am surprised. About, are they? Yeah, I'm surprised by that also. And your your so your mom was just a, you know about a decade older than mine, and I would have thought that in that generation most of the moms, you know, would, would have been cooks. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cause the social mores at that time was like, yes, you were prepared. We're preparing you to marry. Right. And be a good housewife. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, that's so interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. For, yeah. Fortunately, we're not, don't have the, those kind of constraints on women anymore. No, not in the most part. I mean, I think more women feel free to do other stuff, but you know, that was the, the expectation. So to, to find when I was growing up, just to hear all so many of my friends who had moms who couldn't cook. I was like, hmm, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, that really does surprise me. So, well, you know, you said your mom made this whole diversity of foods, a wide array, and one of them was soul food. And of course, you call yourself the soul food scholar, which is a name I love, <laughs> Adrienne. Actually, let me ask first, is there is there a story to how that came about? Did you choose that for yourself? Did someone give it to you? How did that come about? Well, uh, no, I chose it for myself. So, <laughs> I know, love it. Yeah, it was the congruence of several things. So I'd always prided myself on being a nerd and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, showing my intelligence. And so when I was a kid, not everybody, but some people called me the professor. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, I, you know, all today it's all about branding, right? And marketing. Yes. And so I was like, well, I need to have some kind of catchphrase. So then Soul Food Scholar, you know, had some alliteration to it and stuff. So it just seemed to capture my vibe. It, uh, yeah. I'm and proud of my tagline that follows, which is dropping knowledge like hot business. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> I like it too. And the two go along very, very well. It is the perfect tagline for that moniker. Well done. Yeah. Well done. So I'm curious, you said one of the types of food she made was of course, soul food. And, you know, it's this term we hear all the time, 
right? But it's never actually been that well-defined. And what's interesting is more and more I read books and cookbooks and articles that are talking about redefining soul food. But how would you define first, before you redefine it, how would you define soul food? And do you think it is a changing definition? Yeah, I, I think soul food is very valuable. So to the first question, I always tell people what I tell people now is that soul food is the combining of the culinary techniques and traditions of West Africa, hmm. Western Europe, and the Americas. Hmm. And so it's one of the earliest fusion cuisines that we have in this country. Hmm. And I think what what really trips people up is when you start listing soul food items, they really have a lot, share a lot in common with Southern food. Right. I was going to say, is it, was that fusion cuisine like inherently Southern? No. So what I argue, and um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to really argue this. Mm, mm-hmm. um, although some people have talked about it, but they never really pinned it down. But I argue that soul food is really the food that African-American migrants took out of the South and transplanted in other parts of the country. Oh, so it really so, can't be soul food until it goes somewhere else. Right. Because if you search them in the South, people don't really call it soul food that much. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And let, well, let me actually back up. So yeah. before the 1960s, all of this cooking was called Southern food or Southern cooking. Right. The first kind of different iteration we get is down home cooking from mm-hmm. the black migrants that settle in Northeast US. So in um, places like Cleveland, New York, Boston, mm-hmm. they started talking about that food that they were used to back south, down home in the South as down home cooking. Got it. So that's, that's the first iteration that's different. And then soul food is another iteration that gets coined. Uh, and actually the term was floating around in black culture in the late forties and 1950s, but it really gains momentum in the sixties. Okay. And so soul food becomes shorthand for all black cooking. Okay. And, and then, that, Southern, okay. and then Southern basically becomes white. So oh, we have okay. a cultural divorce at that time when it, they were all considered interchangeable. Yeah. And so one of the things today is we're trying to figure out how to reintegrate these narratives. So it's called, yeah. some people call it culinary justice, but the idea is like, how do you bring African-Americans back into the Southern food narrative? Right. Because most of the people celebrated are white now. Right, right. Yeah. And that is such a, I really am glad that you explained this to me. I thought, gosh, this is such a, you know, simple rudimentary question, but really when I hear soul food, I actually think of certain dishes and obviously I think of black food, but I'm like, but it sounds a lot like Southern cooking. <laughs> so what's, what is the difference? And you're really explaining there was no difference. It's just that obviously, you know, black and African-Americans had a huge influence on Southern cooking. It was kind of co-opted by whites. When blacks took it out of the South, it was called soul food. And now it's like, well, how do you put it back in? Yeah. So I, I do, I want to, I want to push back on a few things and then please quibbling. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Southern food was co-opted by whites because it was definitely a shared cuisine. Okay. I mean, black people were the primary cooks, but uh, a lot goes into Southern food and it's, it's, it's again, whites and blacks and native Americans. Okay. Uh, it's a fusing of those things. So the thing to me that's different is when black migrants take this food out of the South, it condenses the Southern food menu, because when you go to a new place, you try to recreate home. And if you can get the stuff right. that you had at the, at, you know, at the old country, quote unquote, you do right. that often you don't yeah. have that. Yeah, so you yeah. Have to look for substitutes and you have to see what you can get. So the ways to think about this is, and when this happens is when our industrial food system is also emerging and solidifying. So 
for instance, I'll give you three examples. One of the, you know, there's a ton of greens that are eaten in the South. Yeah. But people most associate collard greens with soul food. Yes. And the reason why is because collard greens were the sturdiest ones. So they're the ones that could hold up in a train ride or a truck ride outside of the South to some other place. Got it. Okay. Dry black eyed peas. Those are the ones that people think about with soul food, even though a number and black eyed peas are actually beans. But there's a lot of beans that are eaten in Southern food, but black eyed peas for whatever were the ones that didn't spoil and had a longer shelf life outside of the South. And then another example, the way to think about this is, you know, peach cobbler in the South, you would eat that when peaches are in season, Mm -hmm. but with soul food, with the advent of canning and freezing, Mm -hmm. you can have uh, peach cobbler all year round. Yeah. And then the last thing to think about is like a lot of the stuff that we consider soul food is really the celebration food of the South. And that follows immigrant food patterns. Because if you think about any other country's food, Mm -hmm. the way we understand it as Americans is usually what we think is their commonplace everyday food is usually the celebration food. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Lasagna. Nobody's making lasagna every day in Italy or whatever. Right. And it's because when poor people come to a place, you know, they struggle, but when they prosper, they remember, they want to have status Mm -hmm. and they remember the good times food of the old country. And so they start having it on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. And it's even heightened when you're a restaurateur because you want to show the very best of Mm. your your customers. Yes. Right. But with no context, yeah, with no context, you're walking in that restaurant and like, oh, this must be what they have all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not thinking that a good, you know, jambalaya or whatever requires like six proteins, all of which are, you know, some of which are really expensive or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that when I asked this question about is soul food changing, I feel like, I think the thought was sparked in me by a book I read by Caroline Randall Williams. Um, What, uh, what's it called? I should know this. Food Love. Thank you. Yes. And then I've read a lot of articles since then, you know, with the similar idea of we have to separate celebration foods from, you know, this good. Well, it was interesting when you talked about your mom being a dietitian. I thought, oh, maybe we're going to go down this route, you know, that there were gardens, you know, just kitchen gardens outside of a lot of homes. And there was a lot of actually healthy and nutritious eating as part of really, I guess, more so, not so much soul food with the definition you've supplied, but with Southern black cooking and that soul food should be almost like redefined to include these things. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And if I've even, if I've even like summed up the argument properly or not, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. No, no, I think you capture a lot of it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the the problem, uh, the challenge I say is that it's because people had a very narrow idea of what soul food is, because if you're in the culture, you know, that vegetables have been a huge part of soul food from the very beginning because mm. of the status of African-Americans. So one, people were poor. So, you know, if you, even if you're a restaurant, if you, any, any soul food place you go to, there's going to be a vegetable plate because, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's actually to accommodate kind of lower income customers. Mm. And then it, as you point out, gardening, urban farming has always been a rich part of soul food culture. But even if you cast all of that aside, right now, the most creativity is in the vegetarian and vegan space. Oh, interesting. Hmm. That's the hottest trend in soul food right now. In fact, most soul food restaurants are now vegan in terms of their side dishes. Mm. I mean, they'll have meat dishes on the menu, but in terms of the sides, Mm -hmm. it's vegan. And it makes a lot of sense because you can reach the broadest customer base Mm -hmm. if you go vegan. Mm. But the the trick is you've got to season well. 
<laughs> it's always the trick. <laughs> Good seasoning. If so, you don't season well, you know, bland vegetables, nobody's going to dig that. <laughs> no. Nope. So the, the question then is, as soul food is kind of like in any food, really, right? Like it's always developing every time a cook walks in the kitchen and pulls something out of the refrigerator that they need to use up, they're developing a cuisine, you know? So what would you say then as soul food develops, like what defines it? Is it who makes it? Is it where they make it? Is it what they use? Are there certain flavors and techniques? Like what gets to count as soul food as it develops? Well, here I depart from a lot of people because mm. I think that anybody should be able to make soul food. Because, mm. you know, there, there are people that tell you, oh, look, only black people can mm. make soul food. Because the argument is, is there's an innate, innate feel that comes mm. to cooking these dishes. I, I just don't think that's the case. I think mm. it's more, I mean, you know, it's more likely that African-American is going to make that food well because they're steeped in the tradition. Sure. But my whole thing is this, as long as you understand the techniques and mm. you you hit the right flavor profile, it can be called soul food. And, you know, I've, I've got stories, anecdotes from African-Americans who had gone to a restaurant, ate some food, and they're like, man, this is soul food cooking. And they go back in the kitchen and it's a bunch of white people. Um, now, this usually happens in the South, but that, that speaks then again to the shared tradition. Yes. That, you know, uh, African-Americans and whites had been working in concert to de develop this cuisine. And so even though historically African-Americans were the ones pressed to make this food, you know, there were plenty of poor whites that had to cook their own food. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, you know, so it just, I think it just depends on who you just, as long as you hit the flavor profile and use the right techniques. Mm. And, and the reason why I make this argument is if, if you think that only one group of people can make a certain type of food, that means that you can't, that means in my case, African-Americans cannot make French food, mm. uh, sushi, you know, well, um, any Latino food. And I just don't think that's, I think that's very limiting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I, let me go back to your story. So first of all, is there anything, cause we did depart and get into this theory, which I find fascinating, but I also want to hear about you. Was there anything before we move on that you else that you wanted to say about your mom and her cooking? And did uh, your dad contribute to teaching you to cook? Yeah. Well, my dad was a good cook, but my mom was so good that he, you know, he did his, he found his <laughs> So what's been interesting though, is that since my mom has died, since my mom died, he actually, I, I try to have dinner with he and my little brother every Sunday. And so mm -hmm. uh, he's been cooking. Mm -hmm. uh, so he makes the Sunday dinner now. That's uh, great. Yeah. And he was the chief barbecuer on the holidays, but he's like, Hey, look, y'all need to start doing this. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I feel like both of those things are typical for the male to barbecue and for, you know, the second generation or the previous generation to say, okay, it's time for the next one to take up. Um, oh, well, there, so there's one thing I got to let you know, though. My mom was please. the barbecuer as well. When she was, was she? Was she? Yeah, That's great. The griller in chief. And so, and one in my forthcoming book on, on African-American barbecue, that's one yeah. of the strong points I make is that, you know, barbecue is so masculinized in how it's presented, but black women have been in the barbecue game forever. I mean, yeah. Black women and grilling is not an oxymoron. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, even just personally, I get a little offended when my family's like, mm, John, this is amazing chicken. And I'm like, well, I brined it and I dried it and I seasoned it. And then I handed it to him and he plopped it on the grill and he did a pretty good job <laughs> of that part. <laughs> so, you know, grilling isn't just the time over the barbecue either, you know? So, right. Yeah. Yep. 
So we, I, I thank you for telling me a little bit about your mom and about the soul food part of your name, but also the scholar part. I'm so interested in this. You said that you were always studious. Your friends used to call you professor. And I'd love to hear as much as you'd like to share about your journey. You know, <laughs> you refer to yourself multiple times as a recovering lawyer, sometimes recovering lawyer, sometimes recovering lawyer and politico. So tell me about your path kind of you were studious, how you got to law school and when you got away again and said, this isn't what I want to do. I want to take a different direction. Tell me all about that path. Well, I'd always grown up thinking I was going to be in politics. Mm. So for a long time, my ambition was to be the Senator from Colorado. Mm. So, you know, I thought, I thought, Hey, you go to law school, practice law for about 10 years or so, immerse yourself in a community, Mm. make all the right connections and, you know, then become partner at a law firm. And then, you know, you run for office. Got so it. that's what I was thinking. And then law school, I enjoyed law school, but it was mm -hmm. not the easiest thing. That's probably the one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. And then practicing law just didn't work out for me. It got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office. <laughs> what, so, what did you not like about it? You know, like I was at a large law firm. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot, there's a hazing element to it. Really? You know? Yeah. There's just these person, these lawyers who were, um, you know, they were the dudes who were thrown in the trash can by seniors in high school. And so yeah. there was like this element of payback and hazing. So it was kind of run like a paramilitary really? organization. Wow. You know, I know a lot of, you know, young lawyers who kind of hate their, hate their life, but I don't think I ever knew that there was a part of the culture, you know, that that was oh, yeah. part of it. That's There's so, like that's a shame. There's a revenge of the nerds aspect of it. Really? Um, and it is, it's just, that's not even necessary. No, uh, it's not. No, of course it's not. Or productive. Yeah, it could be definitely more collaborative. And then, but the main thing was I never got to practice the type of law that I wanted. Cause I always wanted to do kind of corporate law where I was just mm. doing transactions and deal making. Mm. But I was in the litigation aspect of it. And so I just didn't really like that. Mm. the way it works in law firms is when you come out of law school, they kind of plug you where they need you if they make an offer. Oh, okay. And so I switched law firms and the way that I got to do it was to document small loans, but that was just soul crushing work. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I wasn't good at it. So, uh, uh, you know, I was at a cross scholar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was on a crossroads, but then I got a chance to work in the Clinton white house through a friend from Georgetown law school. Yeah. So I worked on something called the Initiative for One America, which was an outgrowth of President Clinton's initiative on race. And the whole idea behind this was that if we just talked to one another and listened, we'd realize we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have two questions about that phase. First of all, do you mind telling the story? Because it really made me laugh out loud of how you got that job. How you oh, asked. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So my friend, she called me up. And she's, and she, what, I was in Denver at the time. So she was just calling to see if I had anybody in DC mm -hmm. who might be interested. Cause she had just moved to DC from New York. So that was her back first time back in DC since you know, our law school days. And I said, well, tell me about the job. And she told me about the initiative for one America. So mm. basically I did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when George W. Bush <laughs> was the final vice president. So I was the head of the search committee. Yeah. And I was the only one put on the list. <laughs> I love that story, Adrian. <laughs> I know it's kind of, I don't know. 
I guess that's wrong of me. I should have done a more open search, but I don't feel no. like <laughs> you felt you felt you would be a good. Did you feel you would be a good fit because of your passion, because of your interest? What what made you feel like, you know, I'd be a good fit for this job? You obviously were. Uh, yeah, the passion, the interest. But then, you know, how many times do you get to work in the White House? Yeah, right. You'd be crazy to pass it up. <laughs> they well, must a, lot have... of people, a lot of people thought I was crazy for taking it. Really? And yeah, because that... it didn't, didn't pay anything. Oh, so, okay. you know, I was I was going to have my salary. Wow. 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 But it did open up opportunities, of course, in a totally different direction than you ever expected. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I do have a question, though, if we can pause here for a second, because I liked what you said. You just said it a minute ago. You said Clinton's bold idea was that if we just talked to one another and got to know one another, we might find out we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. You know, 20, are we 20 years later? From the Clinton administration, 20, yep. something like that. What do you think of that idea? Do you still think that that's enough? Yeah, no, I think it's the one of our core challenges um, yeah. because we are becoming more isolated. Yeah. And a lot, lot, there's a lot of forces that are feeding that isolation. But, you know, the real challenge now is we just have people who don't even want to hear another perspective. Yeah. And so I'm not sure how we square that circle going forward because there are people who need to hear, and I'm talking about from all sides, hmm. who just need to hear other people out because hmm. you you think you know everything, but you really don't. Hmm. But now it's like, how do we create safe spaces for people to come together? Hmm. How do you get the people who need to hear something in that space? And then how do you hold the tension when you disagree? Hmm. Those are the those are the big challenges in terms of um, smoothing out some of the fissures we have in our current society. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not sure how to do that mm. because there's just so many people are, there's just so much self-righteousness mm. and self-satisfaction mm -hmm. with the current world views that people have. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how we get through that. And I think the, the one way to do that is if we have our leaders demonstrate, first of all, model that behavior mm -hmm. and then do the work to bring us together. But we don't mm -hmm. even have leaders who are modeling that behavior right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, President Biden is signaling that, but it's not, I don't see Republicans necessarily responding to that. Mm. And so, you know, I was hopeful with him because I think that is his vibe. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. But we, we need, we need politicians. We need faith leaders. We need celebrities, athletes, yeah. because we're in a celebrity culture. So we, yes. we, need, we need notable people to start modeling this, what we need to do. Yeah, I think that I was thinking as you were talking about the self-righteousness, it's very difficult because the stronger the response, the more attention, right? And so it's hard to speak in nuances when what you need is like the attention and the audience and the platform. Exactly. It makes it very hard to speak in nuances. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, if if there's persuasive evidence that is that should lead you to change your mind, then changing your mind. Yeah. I mean, without getting into detail, when's the last time you heard somebody say to you, I was wrong? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we do it in our family. <laughs> That's one of our values that we do with our kids, but it's hard. It's hard. So again, you know, two questions that I'll give you in a pair because they relate do you feel that you accomplished, you know, part of what you wanted to accomplish working for Clinton? And how does that play into your work now with this council, the Colorado Council of Churches? And what are, what are you doing? You said you don't know to move forward. But one thing I really admire about you, Adrian, is you're still 
trying to do it. So, so what are you doing? Yeah. So and in terms of the retrospective of the Clinton administration, I, I think in that time we did bring some attention to the idea of racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. The New York Times did a, a whole year long series. Um, ESPN did a town hall meeting on race and sports. So, you know, I don't think those things would have happened without uh, President Clinton highlighting the issue. The mm-hmm. thing that makes me a little sad is post-presidency, President Clinton has not really delved into these issues. And I, I don't know why, because if you look at the Clinton Foundation, mm-hmm. almost everything that was a major initiative of his presidency is, is continued in that foundation's work, except race. And um, mm-hmm. he's very gifted. I've never seen a white politician talk about race so comfortably and regardless of who's in the audience. That is uh, interesting. And what did Oprah say? He was the first black president. Remember she actually, said that? I think, I think Toni Morrison said that. Okay. So you might want to check that. But yeah, yeah. You know, that was the idea, right? Before Obama was on the scene that he was our first black president. So in my work today, so through the Council of Churches, I have tried to start some basically reconciliation initiatives, mm-hmm. primarily for black and white churches. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, the, the, the issue spans across several different ethnic groups. But, mm-hmm. you know, I had some events and, and here's the main problem, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is endemic of larger society. On the people of color side of the equation, there's deep cynicism mm-hmm. about the desire of white people to really bring about the work of reconciliation because it's going to be hard work yeah, it's going to be messy and it's got, it's going to happen over time and there's going to be some loss. Yeah. And when people say hard work and messy, what they mean is I, I'm going to use a church term, but I think everyone listening will mean it. They mean there needs to be actual repentance. Yeah. Is that what they mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, in Christian terms, has, has there ever really been a confession of racism? Mm. I mean, my, my church exists because of white racism my religion started, be, my faith tradition started because the whites at this church in Philadelphia would not let African-Americans, whether free or enslaved, pray at the altar at the same time or sit in the same, you know, integrated services. Mm. Blacks had to sit in a separate section and couldn't come to the altar at the same time. So they just said, mm. forget this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I walked mm-hmm. down the street and started a new church. Mm-hmm. So, you know, has there ever been that confession of racism as a mm-hmm. sin? Mm-hmm. And then what does that mean to, to repair and restore the breach, you know, be the repairs of the breach? So, you know, there's deep cynicism about white people. Mm-hmm. There's a feeling that, yeah, white churches only want African-Americans to come and preach on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend mm-hmm. so they can check a box and feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. And then on the white side of the equation, there's, there's a fear of being in a space where you may be the bad person automatically. Mm-hmm. 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 And there's a fear of saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's a f- also a desire that there needs to be African-Americans or at least people of color shepherding the process because they just don't know what to do. Mm. You know, I kind of understand that last, I, can, I understand all of those. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the challenge is, is there's only so many people of color to go around. <laughs> so, you know, to rely on people of color to shepherd, you know, white people through this process is not, I don't think that's a sustainable approach. And my feeling is it's the only way we're going to have a true breakthrough on a lot of these things mm-hmm. is if white people start talking to other white people mm. about how things need to change. Because hmm. usually when it comes from a person of color, it's discounted to some effect. So, you know, when a peer says something to you, I think that just resonates more. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought food is mm-hmm. a way to do this. I had events 
where we would come together for a potluck meal and, you know, these things would have some energy, but ultimately they would dissipate because, and it was usually on the white side of the equation, you know, people were like, well, why do we keep doing this? Didn't we already do something? That was, you know, these are white pastors telling me how their congregants felt about the continued activities. So, so the sense was like, we should have one conversation and it should be resolved. Yeah. Hmm. Or maybe just like maybe one or two, but there's no, hmm. why we, what, what, why should there be ongoing work? Hmm. So one of the things I'm working on right now is how to create a, a dinner guide for difficult conversations. Hmm. And what I'm trying to structure out is how to have a four-part dinner series to deal whatever the problem is. And it's not going to be just race. It could be, you know, patriarchy or sexism. It could be mm-hmm. about homophobia in a community, you, could, you know, whatever it is. But how can, I'm trying to create a, a, a uniform structure that hmm. people can just plug in the problem. And then here's a dinner series to get you started. Hmm. So that's one thing I'm thinking about. That's right so interesting. Do you think that addressing these really like global, by global, I mean, kind of, Amer- you know, it is global <laughs> racism. It's a global issue. It's not a American issue, but it is uniquely American in another way. But so by global, I mean like these broad, do you think the same approach to these broad issues are the approach, you know, if a family's having a trouble deciding, you know, I don't know if a kid is feeling like their parents only care about their sports achievements or something like that. You know, do you think it's the same types of conversations? Do you think dinner table conversation is dinner table conversation? Or do you think there needs to be something unique in solving these types of problems, these big universal types of problems? Yeah, I just think it's a, if if you're dealing within a family, I think it's a different dynamic. So Mm. I'm, I'm thinking of the larger problems at a community level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, the, the, primary person I, I think interested in what I'm proposing would be, you know, the parent in a community that has a problem and they know several people and they just want to bring them together, mm. you know, faith leader or any kind of community leader who'd want to do something, maybe a politician mm-hmm. uh, or even like a middle manager at a corporation who's got, you know, the team is not gelling and maybe wants to figure out how to, how to bring people together Mm-hmm. in order to have a more productive team. So I'm thinking about those kinds of people Yeah, are the ones who would, would be interested in this. And I may be yeah. wrong, but that's, that's what I'm thinking of right no, now. No, I think you're right. I think you're, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't, I mean, Becky, like but I'm white. <laughs> I have like the whitest name there is Becky. If I had a dime for, you know, I was in like middle school when, oh my God, Becky came out. Uh-huh. So I have like the, I, I was the Karen, you know, like my name basically signifies <laughs> yep. Basically the racist white person, which has always been a bit of a uncomfortable situation. Um, so yeah. So I mean, I didn't ask for the name. So I'm white as they come. And I think that there is a lot of interest in doing that. I not, I think I know for a 100 percent fact, there's a lot of interest in having these conversations. And I think that a lot of us are having them. I think that for me personally, I found that there is so much more value in having them personally than on social media. I actually think part of the problem is having them on social media. So I seek them out personally as much as I can. And I think that, like you said, there's just this, we don't know how. I'm thankful for some close friends who are willing to engage. But I think a guide like that is a really helpful thing because it's something that if everyone's agreeing to go through this set of questions, that's different than me asking a question that can be quite accusatory or quite dismissive or quite tone deaf or all of these things that 
you can either knowingly because you're defensive or uh, truly unknowingly be. So I think it's a wonderful thing. And I do think you're right. I do think there's a lot of desire to have these conversations in a productive way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I just think people need to be, they just want to have some tools. Yes. To help them start to deal with it. So Yes, yes. So how about your work as a cookbook author? Do you find that to be part of a work towards racial reconciliation? Or is that more a part of a work of, well, first of all, just your own curious curiosity as a scholar, but part of a work of just, you know, celebrating. Yeah, maybe previously, you know, undermined people. Yeah, no, I think my work, and I, I just want to say, I, I usually write histories with recipes. So yes, yes. Uh, so I wouldn't call, I wouldn't call my books a cookbook. I don't want to disappoint people. Yeah. Okay. No, <laughs> I, I yeah. no, 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 no. A lot of people call it cookbook, but yeah, I, I, they're histories with, uh, with recipes, but my, I appreciate uh, that. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. And that must be a marketing effort because there's not as many spaces for a book that you can't quite compartmentalize like that. Yeah, no, it's been a challenge because, you know, I've been in conversations where like, hey, you wrote a cookbook? And I'm like, no, actually, it's a cookbook. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, well, when's your cookbook coming out? And I'm like, okay, it's a cookbook. So yeah, my, my work has been really about highlighting, bringing attention to things that I think are undervalued, underappreciated. And a lot of times I call them hidden histories. Mm. Uh, but, you know, as I do this work, I don't think calling it a hidden history is really accurate because- these stories were told at one point we just didn't keep telling them and Mm -hmm. so a lot of my work has been resurfacing things that were told at one point and then offering a new way to look at something Mm -hmm. so you know nobody had ever written a scholarly treatment of soul food Mm -hmm. and you know because I was looking at all these other cuisines that get celebrated and I was like well why not my food Mm -hmm. Uh, you know the story of histories like the, these stories about presidential cooks had been told separately but nobody ever brought them together mm-hmm. in a collective biography mm-hmm. and then with my barbecue book you know it's just african americans have been pushed to the sidelines of barbecue mm-hmm. in recent media coverage and i was just like well what's up with that <laughs> yeah Yeah. So, well, first of all, I really appreciate that distinction. And for anyone listening, I don't want the word history to scare anyone off. I, (laughs) I I really, I really don't like, I deeply, deeply enjoyed the president's kitchen cabinet. It was funny. It was fascinating. And it did just what you said. It made me think about this whole group of people that I had never really, well, I guess I hadn't really thought about cooks in the white house in general. Yeah, you know, I I hadn't either. And I wish I had gotten the idea while I was in the White House because I could have gotten so much scoop, but it came to me later. Yes. Well, let's just let's end with that then, because I am curious again, as we talk about your scholarship, just how you go about your process. Because when I, I mean, I'm telling you, Adrian, as I read these stories, there was so much detail that you found. And I, pictured myself, like I could close my eyes as I read a story and pictured you in a library with books piled high on either side of you. And I thought the amount of research that you must have done to pull out these nuggets for us, how, what is your process as you sit down to write these, these missives? (laughs) Yeah. So no, that's the great, that's the right way to think about it. So what I do normally is I sit down and at first I just do scour the earth research. Mm. And so the boon in all of my books, the boon in my research has been the digitization of old newspapers. Oh yeah. Mm. And they're word searchable. So, you know, you got, you have to spend a lot of time understanding how food was discussed in a time mm. and how black people were discussed in a time. Cause that even changes. Mm. You know, sometimes at different times people said Negro, they said colored. Mm. 
Afro-American or they would use euphemisms like dusky. Mm. Uh, Blacks in the United States were called Ethiopian. Mm. So, you know, and then cooks were talked about differently. You know, sometimes they would say chef, sometimes Mm -hmm. they would say cook, sometimes they'd say scullion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's all, so you got to figure all that stuff out. But when, you know, once you figure that out, there's just like a whole bunch of information out there. (laughs) And then the other, the other trick is just like, okay, how do I, what do I think is going to be compelling to a reader and then how do I write this in a way, you know, sometimes the stories were just compelling themselves. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, how do you present it in a way that the reader is going to be intrigued? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I made some mistakes because I was relying on secondary sources. So this is part of the fun of it. So somebody's descendant would reach out to me and they'd say, well, you know, that's not exactly how it happened. And I was like, oh, but, you know, I didn't have the primary source. Right, or, right. Yes. Well, and, you know, and I know I know you need to go, but, you know, the other thing is who's even to say the descendant has it right? Because you know how family lore is, you know, things exactly. change some generation to generation. So I, Adrian, I really, I so appreciate your time. I appreciate your wisdom. I really appreciate your books and your writing and the things you are bringing to light. I know it's a lot of work, everything that you're doing. And I just... I hope that you will keep pushing ahead because I think we're all benefiting from it. So can you just tell us about where we can find your previous books, your most recent book that's coming out, and if there's anything else we should know that we can support moving forward? Yeah, so you can find all of my books at Mm soulfoodscholar.com. In the navigation bar, I've got about my books. Mm. And so you can find the Soul Food book, President's Kitchen Cabin, and my next book is called Black Smoke, African-Americans, United States of Barbecue. Mm-hmm. You can order from me and I'm happy to autograph it. And then on the on the internet, you can find me at soulfoodscholar.com, which I just mentioned, that's my website. And then on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, I'm also Soul Food Scholar. So I try to make it easy. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great moniker. It's easy to find. It sums you up perfectly. I'm so, so grateful for your time, Adrian, and I'll look forward to releasing this episode in a couple weeks. Okay, cool. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure, Adrian. Take care. All right, peace. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Adrian for his time and his graciousness. And thanks to all of you for tuning in today. All of Adrian's contact information and links to his three books are in the show notes over at thestoriedrecipe.com. Next week, we will hear from Fatima, who spoke courageously, eloquently, and passionately with me about her life in Lebanon, her immigration to the U.S., her love for both countries, and the way that food bridges the gap between the two. I will definitely be doing a follow-up interview with Fatima. Our conversation was really exhilarating. Make sure that you hit subscribe now to make sure that you don't miss any of that conversation or, of course, any upcoming episodes. Thank you, finally, so, so much to all who have left reviews over the last week. As one last reminder, between now and the end of April, Podchaser is donating to Meals on Wheels America for every review left by you and every response left by me. And of course, I'm happy, happy to respond. So you can help the podcast grow, which will allow me to share more stories with more and more listeners all while also providing meals to those in need. To do that, simply go again to thestoriedrecipe.com and instructions on leaving a review are in this episode's show notes. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.